You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in Revelation chapter 6. Now, so let's do a quick recap. If you remember the book of Revelation, it's called the Apocalypse as we know it, or the Unveiling. And it is not really an unveiling of end-time events, as it is often thought. It is an unveiling of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is being unveiled in this book. And it is about how he will take back his kingdom. There is no other book, really, in the whole Bible that gives us such a unique picture of Jesus Christ. Obviously, all the Bibles gives us a picture of Jesus Christ, but Revelation is unique. There are over 30 different titles and names and attributes of Jesus given in this book alone and therefore you will be blessed just by reading it and if you remember revelation 1 verse 3 it says blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and who heeds the things which are written in it for the time is near in chapter 1 we had that amazing vision of the glorified king john sees this glowing figure of christ standing among those seven lampstands remember that we said were the churches of god his hair is burning white like wool he has burning eyes glowing bronze feet a sword coming from his mouth and his face is shining like the sun this is an awesome scene that starts off this book and it sets the whole theme for the book this is not the same as you see jesus portrayed in the gospels the man who walked the shores of galilee who got tired who was weary and hungry, who was beaten, bloody, despised and rejected of men. This is Christ glorified, magnified in all of his kingly majesty appearing to John here. And it's something of a very different scene. And he tells John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's basically reminding him who he is at this time. That is chapter one. Chapters two and three. We have those amazing letters to the seven churches, Christ's last words to his church, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We went through each of those letters to those churches, and as you remember, they have different rebukes for things that they're getting wrong, commendations for things that they are doing right, and they all give us insights into the character and person of Christ and to the rewards promised to the overcomers, the rewards that will be manifested in his kingdom for the church. And then in chapter 4, we were taken into the throne room of God. And that's really where we spent a lot of time. We saw a vision of that heavenly throne described with those, like a jewel really, emeralds, rainbows of light emanating from it. A very hard scene to describe, but it's a wonderful vision. Around the throne were 24 little thrones with the 24 elders sat on them. And we identified those as representing the glorified church, if you remember. Also around the throne, we saw the four living creatures, these fantastic heavenly beings who surround the throne and cry out in worship to the Lord day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. That is what they do there. And as again, you can tell, language really fails the author, I believe, at this point. We don't have the full capacity to understand this scene. We can only use our imagination. We see dimly now. One day, we'll know what that's like. But the vision continues in chapter 5. It focuses more upon the one sitting on the throne and upon a scroll that he's holding in his hand. And you notice, remember, John starts weeping because he thinks no one is worthy to open the scroll until one of those elders steps up to him and says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. We spent 
quite a bit of time looking at the importance of this scroll by understanding the laws of land redemption in Israel. I'm sure you'll remember that study. I took you through all those Levitical laws of land redemption in Israel and it's impacted your life greatly, benefited you in your daily lives immensely. I'm joking, but I'm not half joking. And the conclusion we came from that was that this was in fact the title deed to the earth. One of the roles of Jesus Christ is that he is called our kinsman redeemer. And as those laws specified, only a relative, a kinsman, could redeem lost land from an Israelite. And this title deed represents the deed to the earth. And Jesus Christ, as truly man and truly God, is a relative. And he is the only one who has the right to redeem back the earth from Satan and those who have usurped it. And that is the whole message, really, of the book of Revelation. And then after chapter 5, looking at the scroll in the back end of chapter 5, the focus shifts to one in front of the scroll, actually at the centre of the throne it's described, and this is the Lamb, the Lamb who is pictured as being slain, and it places for us the death of Jesus at the very centre of the universe, in my opinion. It's the centre of God's throne, he's the centre of everything. And we noted how this Lamb, this slain Lamb, stands to his feet, and this is a very dramatic moment. Up until this point he has been sitting waiting at his father's right hand until the time when he was to make his enemies his footstool, until the time where his father said, go redeem the earth and set up the kingdom. And now is that time. This is where we've got to in this book. It's a very dramatic moment. He is the only one worthy. He fulfills every requirement. And his father says, go. And now we see him come. And that's what these seals, that's what these scrolls, that's what all this judgment is about, redeeming back the earth from those who should not be in charge of it. We gave it over to them, in fact, when we sinned, mankind sinned all the way back in the garden. And the story of history, the story of humanity is this. It all leads up to this, basically. This is God's future. And this should give us comfort in many ways because we can see the future and we are secure in him. So that is where we are in Revelation chapter 5. And now we must have that in our minds as we move on into chapter 6. I remind you, chapters are a human invention simply for the use of study. So this is a continuous flow that we have here. We've seen the scroll, we've seen the throne room, we've seen the lamb. Now he stands, he takes the scroll. And let's look at Revelation chapter 6 verse 1. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now he breaks one of those seals on this scroll. This is a very important moment. The things that the author of Je- that he said must happen soon are beginning now to unfold on this earth. And just to remember, this is not judgment just for judgment's sakes. This is the rightful true king coming back to claim what is rightfully his. And if people stand in his way at this point, this is the time where grace is not over, but grace is moving now into a day of wrath. This is the time where those usurpers will know that he is the rightful king. We saw the song of redeemed in chapter 5 and it says that he was slain so that he could redeem men and also so that he could redeem the earth. And now this slain, resurrected lamb is returning to this earth as a risen, glorified lion and he is coming back to claim his kingdom. This is a unique time in earth's history. This is the final week of the present age and these judgments that we are going to read are also very unique. 
They will be not like anything we've ever experienced or known on this earth before. And if you go through Earth's history, Earth has known much evil, much war, much famine, much death, much sickness, much disaster on this world. But all of that will pale when we see this. It's a different time of history, something that we can't really imagine. And this is one of the issues that I find people confuse, particularly as we've talked about with the issue of the rapture debate and these sorts of things. Many assume that things are going to be just like they are under a communist regime or something like that. Now that might give us a small picture, but that's going to pale in comparison to what happens during this time. Jeremiah 30 verse 7, speaking of this time, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, he will be saved from it. Matthew 24, 21, the words of Jesus, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. That's from our Lord. You think of all the bad things that have happened on this earth. He says this is going to be something completely different. And we'll see why as we get into this study. It is also unique, and this is one of the main reasons why it will be very different. The restraining influence of the Holy Spirit through the church is removed from the earth during this period. And we might not think that that the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is a massive thing. The church is here on this earth. We preserve it, don't we? We're salt and light, those two images that we have. We preserve decay. However, at this time, that is not there, and we get to see the pure manifestation of evil in all its unadulterated pureness. A few weeks before we stopped the Revelation study, we did a Wednesday night special topic study where we looked at the rapture of the church in a little bit more depth to to tie up why we believe what we do in this church. And one of the things that we looked at was the identification of this thing that is written about in the book of Thessalonians called the restrainer. If you're not sure what that is, let me read to you the text so at least you have an idea if you haven't heard that study. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll read the whole thing, verses 1 to 8. If you have a Bible, turn there, please, because you'll need to follow along with me. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 8. Extremely important text dealing with the end times from the Apostle Paul. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The context here is the day of the Lord, teaching about the day of the Lord. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Note that phrase. We're going to be talking about that man a lot this morning. The son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed? You know what restrains him now, so that he will be revealed at the right time. For the, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. This is basically what we're reading about in the book of Revelation here. But notice, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction as he is called there, is a person we're going to read about a lot in this book, but he will not be revealed until this restrainer is taken out of the way. 
Now, regardless of the whole debate about who or what the restrainer is, I argued that it was the presence of the Holy Spirit, only he is powerful enough to restrain the appearance of the Antichrist as he indwells the church. That was my argument, that's what I taught, and I believe that makes perfect sense. So here we are. This is the first of the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've probably heard that phrase. Probably one of these are probably the four most popular characters in the entire book. They've been represented through art, through history, through film, popular culture, cartoons. They're on The Simpsons. You fight, you know, they're just everywhere, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. However, not really are they ever understood in the proper context of the book of Revelation, but they are very popular. So let's have a look at this first one here. Now, just say I don't think these are literal horses in that sense, this is purely apocalyptic imagery, but they do represent literal things that are going to be happening with their arrival at this time. Now, it's actually very similar, it's, it's being drawn from imagery of the Old Testament. If you read the book of Zechariah, you'll be aware that he has a similar vision of white, red and black horses, and they are used to represent coming judgment in Babylon and various different places. There's been a big debate about who this rider on the white horse is, uh, many interpreters, ancient and modern, see it as Christ. And there's a reason why they do that. There are many similarities. If you turn to the end of the book of Revelation, you will see the picture of Christ coming at his second coming, riding on a white horse. They're both wearing crowns, and they're both described as being conquerors or victors. Overcomers is the same word there. So many people, because they see those uh, superficial similarities, they've just said, right, well, this is clearly Christ coming. However... I would just caution you, you need to be very careful when you're looking at something like this. A few similarities does not mean we can just make a quick identification like that. You have to examine it a little bit deeper. Let me show you a few, a th a few things to try and open you up a bit on this. I would say if you make this rider here Christ, you ruin the flow of the book ultimately. This is not where he should be appearing at this time. We're not quite there yet. It ruins the dramatic arrival of his true arrival in chapter 19, which is the end of the book, which is where he does fit in properly. That's the first reason. Secondly, we just read, didn't we, that the lamb took the scroll and broke it. It's kind of illogical to have the same person who breaks the scroll to call himself forth uh, to ride on the horse in judgment. It doesn't seem to fit the chronology of the book. Thirdly, he has a bow. Christ has a sword in his mouth in Revelation, we see, not a bow, it's different. Again, these are differences. Um, another reason, the rider is commanded to come forth by the living creature. Angels, no matter how high, do not command a conquering Christ to come forth. He commands his angels, you see. It's the wrong way round there. And we also know that this rider in the white horse is accompanied by four, three other horsemen who are war, death, and famine, as we shall see through this book. That's bad company to keep for Christ. Whereas we know from Revelation 19, when Christ comes, he is accompanied by the host of heaven, the armies of heaven, the righteous, those in white linen. That's the picture here. So you can see these, there are some superficial similarities, but there are more differences that should warn us that this is not an identification that we need to make. So what is this character representing? There are some imitations, and I would say that is done purposely. It is exactly the point. And the second major view for what this white horse is representing is that this is the arrival of that man we just read about in 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, popularly known as the Antichrist. That's a, a name I don't really like to use because people misunderstand it. It's been popularized. But it really means the one who is coming to stand against and to put himself in place of Christ. That is what this man is. 
And this identification better fits with this period of history that we call the Day of the Lord. We just read about it from the Apostle Paul and from the words of Jesus and from the book of Revelation. So many of us think, as we mentioned in our introduction, people shy away from the study of this book because they don't like these topics. And unfortunately, when you do that, as we've just seen, you destroy most of Second Thessalonians, huge amounts of Jesus' teaching, the entire book of Revelation, much in 1 and 2 Peter, huge amounts of the major prophets of the Old Testament. You cannot keep the book together. You have to cherry-pick the bits you like and the bits you don't. That is not really the way that we're supposed to study the Bible. We do it all, the whole counsel of God. And this is one of those themes that actually, when you understand it properly through the light of the Bible, this is the glorious time. This is the end. This is the birth pangs before the birth of that wonderful kingdom which Jesus said, seek first his kingdom. This is what we do. This is the church. So this is why we are studying this again for another reason. But don't be alarmed. We will see here. We know who has the victory at this time. But it is fascinating to see how these things play out in this world. So this man, let's talk about him a little bit. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Sorry, I forgot to show you there. This is just a famous picture of the four horsemen. There's so many artistic representations from certain areas of history of this person. Now, in John 5:45, Jesus says this. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me, speaking to the Jewish people at this time. He says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. It's kind of a cryptic verse. And he is referring to this future person who will come and offer himself as this messianic figure. If you want to put it like this, this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, is actually nothing more than Satan's messiah figure. He is offering him as a substitute for Christ. He will be the one that will come and fix all these problems. He is against Christ and he is also in place of Christ. That's what this word means. We would say he is a counterfeit. Yet he will deceive the world at this point. As it says in the Bible, because men seek not the love of the truth, so they will believe the lie. The influence, the restraining influence, remember, of the Holy Spirit is gone at this point. Truth is not being proclaimed in the world at this point. The deceptive power is operating in all its fullness to a degree. Now, in fact, you find this personage is mentioned right back in the beginning of the Bible. It's a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? a verse called the Proto-Evangelium, because it's the first mention of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who will crush the head. But also, in that verse, you will have another thing mentioned, the seed of the serpent. And this is the first historical reference to this person, all pointing towards this final culmination of history. Now, he is not going to be some sort of black trench coat wearing uh, person looking like that, probably wandering around, running a coven with a goat's head on his chest or anything like that. I think that is much too uh, ridiculous. This man is going to be a world leader. And you can learn a lot about his career through the Bible and also through certain historical personages and governments through history. And I'll be explaining that to you a little bit as we go. Now, again, a lot of people don't really like to think about this stuff, but it's in the Word of God we need to look at it. The Apostle John warned us, in fact, again, <clears throat> look at this verse, children, it is the last hour. And remember, this is the same author who wrote Revelation. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, for we know that this is the last hour. 1 John, 2, well, 1 John 4 is 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. So in both these verses, you get an understanding that John understands that there is a literal future, final culmination coming of the Antichrist, yet he also says, already in this day, there are those who have come who are operating in the spirit of this man and are doing his works and pointing towards him. So we can look at these and learn a lot, and that's what we're going to do. There is a final manifestation However, we just also read, didn't we, that final manifestation cannot appear until that restrainer is taken out of the way. That's what Paul taught. We looked at that. So, until that time, John does imply there are people operating in his same spirit through the years. And this is a very fascinating study, and we're going to look at it a little bit now as we get into this. Now, we are given an example of the way the Bible does this. It uses historical people quite often to teach about this person. The ministry, or the ministry, well, I suppose we could say it like that. The ministry of the Antichrist, of Satan. There are prophetic patterns that teach about him. Now, notice the rider that we just read about in Revelation is said to have a bow. It comes with a bow riding on this horse. It's an unusual thing. No arrows are mentioned, just a bow. People speculate. The word is toxon in Greek. It's a very unusual word. If you were to translate that back into Hebrew like they do in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's used for the sign of a covenant in Genesis. Genesis 9.13, I set my bow in the cloud, and that shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and you. Some people make the connection there that this is an illusion that this man comes and makes a covenant. And do you remember when we studied Daniel, Daniel's 70th weeks, we saw that when this man arrives, he will be identified because he will make a covenant with the nation of Israel, a treaty of some description. So most people say that this is probably a, a reference to that in some ways. There is a figure who foreshadows this man in the Bible. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. If you were here for our Hanukkah study, we looked at him in depth. He was the, a man that teaches us a huge amount about the Antichrist. And this is what led to the Maccabean Rebellion, and that's why they celebrate Hanukkah today, the dedication of the temple and all that history. It's fascinating. But let me read you a little bit from the book of Daniel, and we see the career. Now, what this, the way Daniel, prophet, Old Testament prophet, works is often you will find a double reference. There is a partial or a near fulfillment, and there is a far fulfillment. And the near fulfillment is what confirms to you that this is the word of prophecy because it's a sign for those living at the time, but yet often it is teaching about the far and final event era of history. And we see this oftentimes with prophecies about Christ. We looked at it through our Christmas prophecies, didn't we? Uh, where it talks about the first coming of Jesus in Bethlehem and the second coming to rule and reign as his kingdom in the same verse. We, that's quite often how this works. Daniel chapter 8, verses 23 to 26 a passage speaking about the career of Antiochus, this Greek ruler, but also clearly going further and giving us an insight into this final world leader. Now listen, it says, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent, skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but it will not be his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and holy people, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. 
The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. So you see the sort of language of prophecy there. And there are clues here that obviously let us know that this is speaking about the final world leader who will stand against Christ because it says he will oppose the Prince of Peace, the Prince of all princes, that's Jesus Christ, and he will be broken without human agency. We just read about that in Second Thessalonians. The Lord will come and slay him with the breath of his coming. He'll be destroyed by divine judgment. So this is talking about Antiochus, but it's also going farther. So we can learn a lot through Antiochus, who was operating in the same spirit as this world leader. He, was, he is going to be a very wise person, okay? He's going to be a very wise man, skilled in intrigue, it says. Intrigue means deception and also conspiracy. He's going to speak the language of conspiracy to people, which, as we, if anything, we know very well how powerful that can be. He's going to be insolent, proudful. He will gain power by subduing others. He will rise to power by promoting a false peace offering peace, making a peace treaty maybe, offering security. He is mighty, yet his power is not his own. Remember, this is Satan's man on the throne. This is his last attempt to usurp power on the earth, to have himself worshipped. It says he will oppose the Prince of Peace and he will come to an end by divine judgment. Ultimately, he will be a wonderfully impressive world leader with all the beautiful deceptive power of Satan who appears as an angel of light. He will be a wonderful public speaker like no one else. He will command respect and power from the peoples of the world, and in many places he will be given power by the people of the world. Probably just like Hitler was elected democratically. You know, These are the sorts of things that we see in history. Through deception, he enlarges his territory. We know, as we'll study as later in this book, that he does gain economic control over the world. He gains military control over huge parts of the world. There are a few who oppose him, but he ultimately will beat them and take over their lands and their kingdoms. He also works with another man, something, another figure who we will meet later in this book, who is his advisor, we could say, and is also his religious advisor. He will use false religion as another way to get people to follow him and worship him. Now, you don't have to go too far to just see how people who use the language of religion yet deny the substance of Christ are very, very popular. People hang on their words, people buy all of their books, people do, you know, it's, this is not a stretch to understand this, how this could be, especially with, without the restraining influence of the word, without the proclamation of the gospel and the truth every time, from every pulpit and Sunday, without a praying church on this earth at this time, you could see how this has happened. He will be a religious figure, a military leader, an economic leader, a political leader, a spiritual leader. He will be everything, all men to all people. This person that everyone has been craving, looking for, longing for. Most people seek him out in some political figure these days. Let me put this into our world for you. Assuming that we are, this you know, might not be our world, but let me just make an analogy here. He will come and solve the problems of the world. And what are the problems? Whether you believe they're problems that people are hyping up or are real problems I'm not interested in. There are various things that you will see. The climate crisis, global poverty, the pandemic, global security. All of these issues are being offered, discussed from every government in the world, every ruling body, every power, all of these things. And I want you to notice a few things about them if you study this in depth. We did a little bit of this at the beginning. We'll hit it hard as we go through some of the later chapters in Revelation. One thing you will notice, all the solutions that are being offered to these problems 
always result in a couple of things. Increased government control, increased cooperation between governments, collection and ownership and control of assets into the hands of governments and away from people. Always without fail. You can always find that. It's a theme you need to be aware of and watch. And it's something that I'm not making up. You can go back into history and see how this plays out many, many, many times. And this is why one of the reasons why people who are kind of biblically aware of this in some reasons are very cautious about giving away power to governments. And when you see an expanding government, you know that something is probably not going to go well at some point. And history testifies to that over and over again. But there's more to this in history. Let's go back to Daniel 8. A couple of other things I want to pull out. He will even oppose the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Princes, sorry. And in Daniel 11, verse 6, we have more. It says, then the king will do as he pleases, speaking about this, this false king. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. So we learn from here, this is what the term Antichrist really means. It is about setting up a kingdom on this earth that is offered as a utopia that will have man as the saviour and not God. And is that not what most totalitarian governments have offered their people? This is how they get that control. This is what the vision of communism was, the utopian vision. Over and over again, we see history testify to this. This is the spirit. But what we're going to study in Revelation is when it's not just the men operating in the spirit, this is going to be a time when it's actually finally happening as a final fulfillment before Christ comes back. But the spirit of Antichrist is fundamentally one thing. All these other different things are just on the peripheral. Economics, land and control and tyranny and all those sorts of things. At the centre is opposition to Christ. That's how, that's how you'll really know it. Opposition to Christ, to people who follow Christ, to the word of Christ. And ultimately, what does the word of Christ bring? Freedom and liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And thus, the negative is also true. Where that is taken away, denied or stamped out, you will end up with tyranny. And history again testifies to that, without exception, really. Now, this must be grasped, because John said that this spirit of Antichrist is already operating. And we can look at world history, we can see rulers and regimes where this ideology has always resulted in totalitarianism, with bloodshed, and overwhelmingly with the persecution of those who follow the word of Christ. And this makes absolute perfect sense in light of the Bible here, because if the Antichrist, if this is the spirit of Antichrist, it should have at its centre an opposition to Christ. And thus, whilst Christ is still in heaven waiting to come, in the meantime, if he can't get to Christ, he'll get to the people who follow the word of Christ. His people, the church, the Jewish people, these are things that we see through history. Now, if we want to look at this in the Western world, in the modern era, I want to take you back to 1789. This is the French Revolution. The ideological roots of that revolution spread, and they have really produced, they are the, the fountainhead of two other disastrous revolutions of the 20th century, the Communist Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and the Chinese Revolution. These are two massive revolutions that have spread communism around the world, and their ideological roots go back to 1789. The defining feature, I'm just picking up on one theme here, and that's what we read from Daniel. He'll oppose the Prince of Peace and he'll speak monstrous things against the God of the Most High. I want to show you how that plays out in history. The French Revolution. One of the things that defined this revolution was a hatred for God, a denial of all things religious, 
They championed the enlightenment principles of human reason to the point of making it a religion in itself. Now, just as a caveat, I understand at this time the Catholic Church, what they were reacting against was horribly corrupt and we wouldn't defend much of what was going on at that time, yet it goes much deeper than that. You can see Satan's hand behind both of those things, really causing the problem, raising up something to address the problem. But let's go further. During the French Revolution, churches were ransacked, priests were butchers, crosses were removed from graveyards, from buildings, from symbols. Uh, they even went so far as to have a, have a law to try and remove the hope of the resurrection that at cemetery gates, they had to have an inscription put up that said death is an eternal sleep. Because you might know in, in those sorts of times, cemeteries were often quite public things and there was Bible verses and scriptures all over the place. During the French Revolution, they would put up gates and they would have death is an eternal sleep at the entrance of every cemetery. This was revolutionary atheism. And it climaxed in what's called the cult of reason, 1793. The cult of reason. This was Europe's first state-sponsored atheistic religion. Churches were commandeered all over the land and they were turned into temples of reason. The most important being the Notre Dame Cathedral. So there's a picture here of the French Revolution. That is Madame Guillotine. As you can see there, if you know anything about the French Revolution, she got a lot of use. That's a picture of a cult of reason. At the beginning, at the entrance, so they did this at Notre Dame, they would carve two, they would have something saying to philosophy. Again, human reason is what they were saying there. They would have a flame put on the altar symbolizing truth. And then they would have a goddess of reason who in fact was literally personified as a woman, a scantily clad woman that they would have at the front of these buildings. Very unusual, but this is obviously, again, I, see the hints and the prophetic foreshadowings of this spirit operating and imagine how it will be in the end times. This is militant atheism. It's been a feature of left-wing revolutions ever since and you can trace this through history. We call it by many different names, revolutionary socialism is another name. It burst out onto the scene brutally in the 20th century, Russia, China, Vietnam. If you've studied these periods of history, they are brutal and there is still a lot of brutality going on in the world today with them. But notice something that holds them all together. Yes, these are different governments, different times, different generations, different people, and different issues going on, but at the core of it all is a stand against God. This is a picture from the Russian Revolution. You see the, the communists with the tractor there, their salute, and if you can, I don't know if you can see, but if you look very closely, the people that they are running over, it is church, or Christians and Jews, basically. That is at the heart of some of the ideologies here that we see. Very interesting. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the man who told us a lot about the gulags and who saw Marxism, communism up close, he wrote this. The world has never before known a godlessness as organized, militarized, and tenaciously malevolent as those practiced by Marxism. Within the philosophical system of Marx and Lenin and at the heart of their psychology, hatred of God is the principal driving force. More fundamental than all their political and economic pretensions, militant atheism is not merely incidental or marginal to the communist policy. It is not a side effect, but the central pivot. And that is true. And remember what those verses I read to you. He will stand against the Prince of Prince. He will speak monstrous things against the Most High. That is how you identify this spirit. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Whether it be Antiochus in Greece, 
the emperors of Rome who set themselves up as God, to all the revolutions we've seen in the 18th, the 19th, the 20th century, to the Islamic revolutions that we see today. It's the same spirit. One of the main teachings of Islam, obviously, is against, very much against Jesus Christ. If you look at somewhere like Nigeria today, many of the people you see being killed daily are Christians, and it's because of this. It's that same spirit operating. You can look all over the world and see this happening. Now, whilst the we have these sort of revolutionary streams that we can look at in Western history and we think, well, that's, you know, we've seen what that does. No one's going to actually accept them today. We're kind of, we assume that we're inoculated against it in many ways and we're not going to see it. Things are a little bit more complicated than that. And although we don't have leaders who are openly trying to do, say, what they do in, you know, in North Korea at this time, they have got in through the back door and they've got in through what we call a cultural stream. In the 60s, they called this their, their battle plan, as their, their phrase they used was the long march through the institutions. They knew they couldn't have the violent revolution like in many parts of the world, so they said, you must have the long march through the institutions. You must slowly put the people who teach your ideology in the positions of power in the institutions, and particularly the universities, and thus you can cause a cultural reformation. All of the events that we have seen over the last few years are the result of what has been happening, this long march through the institutions. We call it cultural Marxism. You've probably heard that term in debates. Most people define it wrongly, but this is a slight, hopefully with a bit of this background, you can see what's getting at here. This is why when you see again those left-wing revolutionaries, Antifa burning Bibles in the street, marching through the streets, shouting, expletive your Jesus, it's the same spirit again operating against Christ, standing against the Prince of Peace. On and on and on, you'll see this thing throughout world history. And this is why it's so important to have a biblical worldview that does not just look singly maybe at the New Testament, singly at what we're doing in our churches, but you can evaluate the whole world through the lens of Scripture. That is what it is given to us for, to be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. You know, the verse, we are supposed to have a worldview that encompasses all of reality. And thus, when we do that, we do not need to be afraid. We do not fear. We can stand. We can pro proclaim the truth while there is light, and we can do that. This is what we do. However, these things are, are in many ways, fascinating to study, if not, unfortunately, quite tragic. There's a picture there of some of the Bible burnings that went on. Bible burnings have long been a, a thing that goes on in this world, to make a point. But this is, as far as I'm concerned, the same spirit that is operating. It is what John warned us about. It is a long tradition that we see. And let me remind you, all of these things that we've been looking at just briefly, historically, they all happened on this earth whilst the restraining influence was still here. So this is the point that we're getting at, why this day this final seven years is going to be absolutely unique because there will be no restraining influence. So there will be nothing to stop this sort of thing happening. That is quite a scary thought, which is again another reason why we have to study these things. They simply point us towards what is going to happen. They give us a little shadow, and yet in the revelation we're going to see it unhinged in all its fullness. It is a very scary period of history, and the point why I believe we're told a lot about this through all the prophets, through, through the New Testament too, is to highlight the emphasis of why Jesus commissioned us to go into all the world and tell everyone about the gospel. He does not want us here in that respect for this period of time. This is not 
a period of time that concerns us in that respect. Yes, there's still some ways that he uses people for his glory at this time, but ultimately, this is it. This is Christ coming from his Father's right hand, coming to the earth and removing those who are usurping his kingdom and setting up his kingdom. That is what it is as the final period. This is what all of history has been moving towards at this time. This is what Satan has always been trying to stop happening. This is what you see happening here. He has given his last final attempt to defy God and he sets up his man, this man of lawlessness. He takes over the world and all these destructions. He has given his final moment and he thinks he's done it and then the Lord appears and he's defeated. And, that, and that, this is how God does it. It's an amazing story and culmination of history. Read it, we'll get here eventually, but let me give you a glimpse now. They have one purpose. This is speaking of those who stand against God. And they give their power and their authority to the beast. That's the man of destruction again. It says, these will wage war against the lamb. Notice, it's the same spirit there you see operating. They stand against the Prince of Peace. They speak things against the God Most High. Just as we've seen all these regimes do through history, there's one key element that always comes up standing against God. And here we see it openly. There's no hiding it now. It's obvious what's happening at this period of history. They will wage war against the Lamb, but then the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with him, it goes on to say, are called the Chosen and the Faithful. So there is open warfare against God at this time, and this is ultimately what history is all about. All these battles that we see through our earth, that people, we can look at different human reasons why we have them, behind it all, with spiritual eyes, this is the cosmic battle of the ages. And we get a glimpse of this in the book of Revelation. This is why we see that victorious lamb breaking this seal. It is ultimately the beginning of the end for all those who are usurping his kingdom, for those who defy God for that heavenly being that we call Satan, that angelic being rather that wanted to have worship of God. This is why he put his man on the earth and he set himself up as God. This is why people following in that spirit have always tried to seek worship from man. They set up their own statues and they make people worship them. We're going to see this in the future. We've seen it in the past and it's happening in many places in the world today. But for a period, we get this rider on the white horse now. The arrival of this Antichrist, we're going to see how he positions himself in the world, positions governments, takes over economies and all these sorts of things. It's fascinating to study. He is trying to usurp God's kingdom, yet we know that when the Lamb comes, he's gone. He's done. And we'll see that happen too. Now, this is a lot. It's a big scope of history here, but it is absolutely fascinating. But again, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're safe in his arms. You have no need to fear. Like I said, God is on the throne. The blood of the lamb can overcome. We rest secure in him. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you've got some thinking to do, to be frank. You need to acknowledge what he says about this world. You can track it. You can see it's through. Accept his offer, his invitation to forgive you of your sins, to bring you into that relationship for which you were created, to enjoy the future for which he originally intended you, enjoying him in all his fullness. This is ultimately the gospel. If you want to do that, speak to me afterwards, please. This is what the message of the word of God. We need to understand the times. We need to listen to the word of God. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. 
If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.